Welcome to RPG Ramblings with Jeff Jones, a weekly show exploring the various details of the tabletop RPG hobby through discussions with interesting people. In the first segment, Brad Grover of Big Nerd Coffee Roastery talks about partnering with people like you and me for our Kickstarter projects. He matches a coffee roast with the RPG product, and that becomes an add-on for your Kickstarter. Who doesn't love coffee? Listen for all the details. We get into a fairly deep discussion about shipping, the costs and logistics of shipping, and muse about the different ways to work through those costs. In the end, I keep saying goodbye only to restart the conversation. The second segment is a discussion with Diogo, where we discuss his RPG experiences growing up in Brazil and his love for the OSR. It will come to nobody's surprise but my own about how much the same geek media permeates all international boundaries. Well, Ramblers, it's time to get rambling. Hello, Morgan. Hey, how's it going? It's going great. Okay, so uh, on the Facebook um, group RPG Zines, you you, um, expressed that you had this business, so you roast coffee. That's correct. And you actually have a a fairly unique way that a, a business approach you're taking with this. So could you explain what exactly you, how you're trying to marry uh, the idea of zines and coffee. Totally. So my business is called Big Nerd Coffee Company. The whole idea of it derives from just my background and my heritage with RPGs, the video gaming board or tabletop board game, things like that. And right now we're really focused on the local community, especially through this whole COVID-19 ordeal and things like that. But with this year, with 2021, my big goal is to sort of start branching out a little bit, start working with online sales, working with other people. And I want to do that through supporting independent writers, independent authors, game designers, artists, things of that sort. I'm not looking to build like an online storefront for people to just go in and order things. I really want to actually be an active community in supporting other artists creating things. You know, I kind of figured that on my end, I feel that coffee is an art form in itself. And I want to be able to just marry that with other things that I'm into, other hobbies, other likenesses. So when you say support, like independent uh, writers and such, what exactly do you mean by support? Um, well, we have my main coffee shop is called Bell's Country Coffee, and we actually have a huge support following that all across the U.S. So my big goal is we would support you in shop as well. I do have an entire wall full of gaming memorabilia. Um, we, obviously, we have a few s- small sections of some bigger name retailers, you know, like Wizards of the Coast, just because they're so popular. But the entire wall is made up mostly as many zines and as many independent authors and artists that we can. We do that through supporting their artwork on the walls and such things. And I want to be able to basically take that same idea and move it online. Um, That's really my big goal here is to support them through um, well, in, in in this project here, they would actually be making money off of my coffee. I get money through the wholesale process. They get money through the profits that they make on the coffee, but it also helps push their stuff out to a little bit of a wider network. I know some people, this is the first time they're doing a Kickstarter or first, second time even, and I'm able to get an extra you know, 10 to 15,000 people to look at this. I can't guarantee, obviously, all of them wouldn't right. jump on that, but it's a little more, I mean, it's a little something that I can at least offer. Okay, so I think the initially, um, well, it's initially, but in the uh, in the Facebook post, so what you're saying is that for um, a certain amount of money, I believe you said it, 
generally averages between eight and twelve dollars a pound. Yep, and that's when I sit down to, with people to figure this out, they could go through and pick the coffee, and I could be able to tell them exactly what the wholesale price would be. But normally, it's right around eight to nine dollars, unless they want to get real fancy. So the idea is, you talk to somebody, um, artist, uh, writer, whatever company, and you have a product that you're wanting to sell. And so, like for me, I've got two zines I'm launching for um, on on Zine Quest. And then what you would do is you we would talk through um, really what the um, kind of what the content, what the feel, what we're trying to go for, and then match the coffee with the product that we're selling. Yep. And so, so we would go through a, a discussion, and then uh, once we agree on a, um, okay, so once we agree on the coffee and how it's to be roasted, uh, then what happens next? Well, from there, there is a turnaround for coffee. Um, the people that I would sit down with, I can give them an idea of the different coffees. We can pick that out. Sometimes it's something I can get within a couple of days. Other times, if it's called a flow, it means it's basically across the ocean to get here in order for me to get to it. So there is a little bit of a time in between. Normally, it's no more than about two weeks. And I'm thinking with a lot of the Kickstarters, they usually push it out a month or so before they really fulfill them or get rolling on that side of it. So it shouldn't be a huge deal. And basically from there, once I get the coffee in, I will do a few different rows, figure out which one fits exactly what everybody's looking for. Um, put that together. I do all the roasting, all the bagging. I have artists capable of doing the artwork if they have an idea that they want. Um, it would have the, my big nerd coffee insignia on it, but mainly I focus on the artwork itself. Bag everything up and ship it out to them. And on their end, once they get everything, they basically just box it up with zines and send it on its way. So like I could send you a logo and then you'd print it out, put it on the bag and there'd be a separate logo for, uh, for your uh, big nerd coffee, right? Usually. Yeah. Um, the bags themselves are you know, obviously double-sided. So the main front side would have whatever the artists artwork or whatever the writer, author, whatever the case might be on the back side. I'll, usually we just have small stickers. We slap on the back just so they so know where it's from. What size would you have for the, uh, for the graphics then that, that the customer could put on there? Um, our bags, they've done in a one pound bag. I do one pound instead of the normal 12 ounce, just because I think 12 ounce is kind of lame. Um, but the one pound bags, the front facing is four inches across by six inches tall. So up to that size, basically. Well, that's really significant. Yep. Obviously the bigger the sticker and the bigger the label, the more it costs. Um, but I'd probably have people do more in like the three to five range. I mean, it doesn't really cost much on my end at that point. And so it's not a big deal at all. So I guess if I understand, maybe I don't understand correctly, but like, let's say I've already got my artwork, I'll design it for, for that. But let's say somebody doesn't have much of anything, then they could uh, pay, then you'd have a designer that they could pay to have it designed. Is that what you're saying? Um, yep. Odds are it would be super cheap to nothing on their end though, because the designers I have, basically I pay ahead on all my contracting for artwork and stuff. So I have artists already lined up, ready to do labels and things like that. That's already been paid for. And then in the future, as I need artwork, I just hit up and be like, Hey, I need such and such. And they send it over my way. And it doesn't cost anything for me. They're already done paid contractors and out of the way. So really on the person that's doing this on their side, there would be no cost. Everything's already covered. Only thing I need from them is a picture of what they want or an idea. If they don't have something specific done, to send over to the artist if they already have something done then i can just have it printed okay 
Well, I mean, it would sound like unless you're, which I'm not, but unless you're a graphic design professional, it makes much more sense to, to kind of at least throw something your way and then actually have the, the professionals put it together. Yeah, exactly. And if, I mean, if they have a logo or something they specifically want, we can do it. If they have no idea, if they just give me something to work with, I can do that too. Either way, it doesn't cost anything more on their end. That's already oh. paid for and done. So what's the, what's the minimum amount that one would have to order? In order for this to really work, they'd have to have at least 20 bags or that tier, 20 of that tier sold. Anything below that, and it gets a little iffy on my end to the point where I'm really not making anything or I'm actually losing money, which I don't mind so much when I'm helping out other people, but I also have a business to run. Right. <laughs> and then on the upscale, up to 50, I could probably swing 60, but more than that, and it starts to, I'm basically ordering more coffee than what I need. And so I'm a little bit overloaded with it. So that 20 to 50 range is the sweet spot. Okay, so so 20 pounds of coffee. So you need at least, so I think the nice thing is, I mean, if you think about it, that um, if let's say a person could only, let's say may only have 15 orders, like why wouldn't I order five pounds more just to cover the minimum, just so I can have the coffee that I picked out? No, that's right. Um, oh, yeah, that's the other thing. I would also send out some bags for the person as well, too. But in case, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally. So I think the nice thing is, is, you know what, it's like, you know, unless you hate coffee, I mean, you're, you've just spent all this time and, and energy uh, to get um, a product that's really dialed into your specifications. So I don't know that, you know, of course, I don't have really an experience of going to roasters and such, but I don't know that that you're going to find that kind of service, I would think, anywhere else. Yeah, I mean, around here, there's not a whole lot. There are a lot of micro lot roasters, but I'm trying to do something different. You can go online and you can find hundreds of them, really. It's becoming a really big market. And I don't want to fall into that same exact market of some sort of gimmicky thing with a website and just selling at overpriced fees. Yeah, well, I think the thing is, is you're offering a number of things, uh, you know, as far as the the art and the labeling, but you're also, I think the amount of time you're taking with somebody, it actually seems um, very reasonable, at least per pound. Of course, you are buying at least at least 20 pounds worth, but still it's like, that's that doesn't seem at all to be a problem. And it's, and the other thing is, is even if you're short on the minimum, you can buy extras and give them as gifts. Yeah, and you still get a wholesale pricing. <laughs> I mean, sell them out if you want to to other people. <laughs> sell them to your parents, sell them to your brothers. <laughs> Yeah, a few more bucks. Yeah, and uh, and so I, I could see where if this were, if you were to time a Kickstarter so that it ends near Christmas. Oh yeah, then you could be it would be Christmas presents. Yep. And not only that, so I think you're also you know a fellow gamer, so I think that's also kind of nice where you kind of understand, you know, if you're saying you know what I got this crazy game and I think I'd want a coffee that just kind of meets that kind of of need. You know, you're not gonna. You know, you're you're encouraging this type of thinking, and rather than somebody's looking at you saying, "We talk about." Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, that's that's exactly what my thought process was. Exactly. Okay, so and honestly, I think you know. So that it, it sounded like I, I didn't add up the time, but I would imagine it's you're talking turnaround like minimum six weeks. Is that? Um. Probably even shorter than that. It, the real big thing, I mean, my roaster is capable of doing several hundred pounds a day. I mean, that's not a big right. deal. The big issue is 
where it's coming from when it gets here and when it comes to me because it goes through especially with you know the shipping and the COVID-19 regulations right now I'm seeing between two to three weeks delays on stuff when it first comes in if they wanted something that was still a flow or still on its way then that's where there's a little bit of a hang up oh right and then if that's something that's already in stock and ready to go it's called an annex or a warehouse whatever the case might be then usually it's here within a week if that yeah and i think for most of us i mean we're not going to be i mean once it's fulfilled um i don't know that there are some people who are ready to pull the lever immediately mm -hmm. but you know for me i'm spending money uh for extra like one still isn't it isn't written it's a collaboration but we're probably made 15 percent done the other one is like if i get more money i'm going to commission artwork and then that's going to do time and plus also sending it out getting a sample sent for, on my end is going to take time so i would imagine most people are probably not going to be fulfilling I, I wouldn't think until maybe early summer yeah that was my thought as well and gives me plenty of time to kind of narrow down the roasting and get everything sort of figured out and ready to go so that when they're ready i can pull the trigger and have everything done as far as the roasting and shipping now that's done in man, like maybe three days tops. I mean, that's really nothing on that part. It's just the fact of it showing up on my doorstep in time. So, so your shot, where are you located? I am in upstate New York. We're actually pretty close to the PA New York border. Um, a lot of people are familiar with like Ithaca or Cornell. I'm just south of that. Okay. Yeah, so it's, um, so yeah, I think for most people, it's like, even if you're, the few that are going to need it quick, you're able to to do that based on the choices. So yep. in, in that case, I would sit down with them and, you know, tell them exactly what they're looking at so they can go ahead. Yeah. Okay. That sounds great. So what I thought maybe we'd do is we could go through um, two ideas that I've got and we can kind of go through what you're thinking and how your questions go so that when can people kind of understand exactly how the process works. So, so I got my first zine uh, is a series of zines but it's set around the theme of crime okay and it's it's intended for a sci-fi but it's actually could be used for modern it's actually a template that you could put over an existing game to run crime games okay yeah so basically with that <laughs> It's sort of up to the authors and to the writers to decide if they're looking for something that is a little more bold, a little more mellow, a little more in your face, I guess. Um, and you should also, I guess I should also mention if people really wanted like a flavored coffee, it is possible to do, but I generally try to stay away from that. I'm Kind of a naturalist at heart and i prefer people to go with an actual single origin or blend of coffee so yeah. that means something you know from brazil from nicaragua from costa rica things like that and i will dial that in from there I'm trying to stay away from actual like french vanilla coffee because right right but i am capable of doing it if somebody really wants something weird like for example one guy had me do up a bourbon pecan coffee it came out really good and everything but it was a little odd <laughs> that, um, I guess it would sort of depend on where you're looking for coffees. Are you looking for something really bold? Are you looking for something a little bit more mellow? Are you looking for a dark roast? Maybe bringing in that whole dark seedy crime, maybe something a light for a sense of cold. Yeah, I'm kind of thinking like 
I think what to me come to mind would be um, something dark and bold, um, and maybe something that has maybe a kind of maybe slightly exotic maybe tone to it. Okay. So really good dark roast. A lot of people do some of the more traditional Brazilian, the popular one that's always darker, or Colombian. If you're looking for something a little more exotic, I tend to hint people towards like Indonesian coffees. There's a lot coming out of Indonesia. For example, Laotian coffee, Vietnamese coffee just hit the market recently. They used to do, there's two different types of coffee, Robusta and Arabica. Robusta is like your cheap coffee, I guess you say. It's not bad, but it's the lower grade coffee. Arabica is your higher end, but uh, I just recently got in both a Laotian and a Vietnamese. The Vietnamese is absolutely stellar for coffee. I was really surprised because it's so much, a very wet lands there and everything. I was expecting it to have a very musty sort of notes to it, but yeah, came out excellent. Um, the Laotian makes a, that's what we actually do for my coffee shop is a dark roast and it's called Collateral Damage. This is based on, there's a group called Absolute Tabletop and Matt Click was an author for a magazine or a small game um, called The Mecca Hack. And I based that around his, and it's just a really dark Croatian coffee that brings in very bold, almost syrupy sort of notes. And I kind of envisioned that to go with the whole oil and the darkness of these mechs and stuff. So, I mean, if you're looking for something a little dark, more exotic, definitely Indonesian, you know, things like Sumatra, uh, Timor Leste, Leo or Laotian. There's quite a few others in that area as well. I'm not sure what is in season over there off the top of my head otherwise. But that's definitely your exotic notes. Flavor-wise, they tend to go a little bit, well, when you hit the darker side, very earthy, uh, pine, woodsy sort of notes. But it also has this almost like a maple syrup sweetness to it. The, uh, so how much is, is Jaron, do those run per pound? And what's the, the delay or delay, but what's the time frame for, for getting that product in? So most Indonesian right now is generally in season and it's in stock. Pretty much everything over in that area I can get within a week's time to my doorstep. Price-wise, you're looking mostly... Most of them should be right around $8 a pound. Um, there are a lot of newer coffees that are hitting the market. So on my end, the price per pound is more like 2 to $3, fairly low end, just because they're trying to make a name for themselves, trying to get into the big market oh, okay. that's dominated by, you know, like Jamaica and Brazil and Colombia, things like that. So they tend to price it a bit lower, so more people are interested to buy it, and then they start to go. So that's why, you know, especially like Vietnamese and Malaysian is a really good one to get into at the moment is through nice, fresh, new coffees that really haven't been on the market or, I mean, they've been around for a long time, but not in the sense that they are now, not at the promotion level that they are now. So they're pushing them basically. Okay. Those ones, yeah, I can get them in usually pretty cheap and yeah, it'd be like eight bucks on your end. Okay. That sounds very reasonable. So the other one I have and I've, I is a, a post-apocalyptic game. And I think for this one, I would like something that would make a great cold brew. Because I'm thinking, you know, post-apocalypse, you're just probably mashing beans with rocks <laughs> against the pavement, putting in some water in a jar, letting it sit, and then slurping it up. Yeah, yeah. yeah that sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> so what would be a good, uh, and I would, I would think if you're in the post-apocalypse, you're gonna want you're gonna want caffeine, right? Because I mean, oh, you're, yeah. you're you're ready for what? I mean, the the, the 
you know, there's a there's a radiated tiger that shoots, you know, poison darts out of its mouth or whatever. I mean, you, you got to be ready for that. You got to be ready to run, right? Because you, you probably not do a lot of fighting. You're going to be a lot of running. So you're going to want to be amped up. So what would be a good coffee that would be a, a good caffeinated uh, cold brew bean? So actually, I have the perfect thing in mind for this. Uh, oddly enough, when I was planning this whole zine starter or zines and stuff like that, I had a post-apocalyptic game I was working on, sort of meshing together like 1970s and 80s uh, crust punk and that really heavy, violent sort of punk into a post-apocalyptic thing. And I had everything planned out for this, so I will just give you what I was going to do. So okay. basically, there's um, a coffee. It's called the Crimson Moon. It's a blend of Costa Rican and Nicaragua coffee. When you roast, you do it on a bit on the lighter end, um, usually in like the 420 to 424 temp range. And it, when it's done roasting out, and you pour it all out and get it all set, once it cools, it gets this almost like a reddish hue to the beans itself. Not a deep brown and not like that chocolatey brown you expect on a lot of beans it's almost like this almost like a bloodish hue to it <laughs> and when you end up doing a cold brew with that which we do at our shop every once in a while um even the coffee itself it's really bright acidic um and i say acidic a lot of people don't like acidic coffee but there's acidic as in it like hurts your gut and you know gives you complications and there's acidic where it has a nice almost like a citrus bite to it and that's what we're looking for in the coffee is that citrusy sort of bite this one has more notes of like a red cherry hints of grapefruit dandelion in it and so it has that sort of on the back sides of your tongue is where your acidic receptacles are and that's they make your tongue kind of tingle a little bit um really high on caffeine because it's a light roast um and again it just has almost like this like a reddish hue. It just makes me think of that sort of bloody violence sort of thing. Uh, yeah. And even being maybe even radiated too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> we actually, we do a red velvet drink at our coffee shop that we throw a shot of red velvet syrup into and it's just complete blood crimson red. Oh, wow. So, so you throw that syrup in there. Oh, I see. Cause it's a syrup that you would add to flavor the beans. Yeah. 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 Oh, wow. That's a red crazy. velvet. Yeah. So if you add the red velvet to this, so what would the cost be for this? Well, the red velvet is like a syrup that you would make drinks with, not into the beans themselves. Okay. So it's not a syrup that gets mixed with the beans no, and no, roasted. No. It's for like okay. a drink, like your alcoholic syrups, that type of thing. Ah, okay. Yeah. But otherwise, yeah, Nicaragua is generally a pretty moderate, it's, you know, two or $3, depending on what farms you're going from. I try to support small co-ops and small micro lot farms, which that's the other thing that this was focusing on is the beans that I get, I also try to make sure the best that I can that they're actually going to these farms and going to co-ops and environmental programs, things that actually help these countries. They're not just going to some CEO in San Francisco who's pocketing the money and buying another yacht. It actually goes to the people growing these beans. It's a little bit hard, it's a little bit iffy on some things, but to the best of my possible ability, I always make sure of that. So that way, it's a good cause. Well, and I think also, I mean, I, and I've not read through it, but there's a uh, sustainability options for Kickstarter when you oh, nice. launch a project, and there's like several different categories, and and so you know, like one is like, do you have can are do you have like things that are reusable, like your character sheets are they reusable? Those types of things. There's many ways of 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 
of sustainability that they've got. And I, that might be an option that you could, um, a person could click or write in or, or whatever the, the means is to say that you're supporting, you know, sustainability. Interesting. You know, and really it's like, you know, I think even that it's like, there's a, there's a value that people have. I mean, you know, if, if there's a small farmer, you know, selling a bag of beans and there's an, uh, then there's, you know, Starbucks selling a bag of beans and there's side by side, the small guys, a dollar or so more, you'd be like, you know, no big deal. I'll just, you know, yeah. but I think it's, gets lost and it's just overloaded information. It's just as easy to go to, to Costco and just, you know, just grab a bag and not really think about it. But here, I think you provide a really good option and that people staring at something because, you know, the prices are actually, you know, your prices are pretty reasonable yeah. uh, and very reasonable. So, um, so I guess the question is, so then once you, so you roast these, uh, and if you, okay, let's say I want, so let's say I get 20, let's say I order 20 bags. Now, some, should I order these? Should they all just be pre-ground? Cause I, I prefer to grind my own coffee. Mm -hmm. Do you, how does that work? Do you split it up or? So my, I'm not too familiar with, I bought stuff off Kickstarter and back to things, but I've never ran one, but I imagine they'd somehow be able to set that up in their backer kit or whatever they do for the first yeah. side. So as long as they, once the backer kits out, they get their surveys back. As long as they're able to give me that info, I can really, I could grind it right down to what that this is, uh, specific person wants and just maybe label each bag or something so the person knows whatever the case might be i would recommend if they can push the whole bean because it's a lot fresher and a lot better but yeah well my concern is and this is i'll tell you my, one of so i thought about doing t-shirts as well because i got i saw the, the coffee and i'm like coffee yeah I'm like i do t-shirts yeah and i started thinking about it's like t problem t-shirts is um is that what if they don't fit like they sent it back to me you know what i'm saying like i do not want that headache but coffee is a lot less of that kind. i mean you know you either you, you when you buy the coffee you're gonna get the coffee there's no you know unless there's a torn bag i mean there's no no surprise no i don't like this i mean yeah. in general i'm sure there's always you know some people out there there's be annoying but but i i mean for me i i think i would rather just you know if i were to if i were to run the kickstarter and maybe I would probably do is run two options, ground or whole bean. Yep. And that way, you know, if somebody says, you know what, I want mine a ground for espresso, and then they get it and they're like, what? I didn't want espresso. Yep. I want, you know, it's like that, that sounds like a potential headache. But yeah. I think having, but you can do some, you will grind the beans or yep. you'll give them whole beans. And it is, but still, whatever they are ordering, however you're doing it, it's still coming to myself in this case. It, you're not shipping, just be clear, you're not shipping directly to a person. Right. It's, but you can fulfill, but you could fulfill any type of grind people want. So somebody says, you know, I want coarse ground coffee, you give them coarse ground coffee. If that's what they want, I can certainly do it from whole bean all the way down to a Turkish fine grind. I mean, whatever they prefer. But as you said, I think it would be much easier on the person running the Kickstarter just to do whole bean and ground. If somebody wants an espresso grind, tell them to get the whole bean and do it themselves. Yeah, yeah. I think most people doing espresso are probably grind their own beans. Yeah, exactly. If they're getting something <laughs> a bit odd, then odds are they do it themselves. 
Otherwise, most people just dump it in their coffee maker and go. <laughs> um, the other thing that that came across my mind thinking about this today was, I think one, I don't want to say hesitation, but the concern I have at this moment is, um, you know, as far as you're in, you're shipping, um, you know, all this product to me, that makes a whole lot of sense. But, um, but the question I have is like, now I need to ship it to people, this bag. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't, I mean, I, I've shipped books, I've shipped, you know, all sorts of things. I've never shipped coffee, you know, and especially uh, this is going to be tied to a zine. You know, it makes sense just to, to mail the zine with the coffee because you're going to be going non, you're obviously non-media there, non-media race yeah. if you had coffee beans. That's... So what, what, how do, what am I going to do with this? I got this, I got my zines, I got my coffee. I want them to go together. Do you have recommendations for boxes? Oh, yeah, that's, one part that, you know, I'd have to let them know ahead of time they're going to, have to be aware of. Um, Box-wise, I can give you the dimensions of our bags so that everybody can, you know, pick out a box that fits. I generally just, I mean, I hate to say this, but honestly, I use Amazon a lot for boxes because you can get hundreds of boxes crazy cheap to whatever dimension you want. Um, we don't have any place local. We did have a cardboard factory local, but they got shut down. And I mean, I'm kind of stuck. So, but so otherwise... You- so you're just saying you just go to Amazon and order the boxes. Yeah. So not not that you reuse old Amazon boxes, <laughs> no, that you order material so you can have Amazon boxes. Yeah, correct. So, yeah, <laughs> usually do it in boxes of 100 or packs of 100 boxes. Most of mine that I ship in are like the last time I did this whole design project with another person, they were, I think, nine by five by three or something like that. But short little square triangle boxes, rectangular boxes. But that is something that the person fulfilling the Kickstarter needs to keep in mind is getting the boxes for it and shipping. Obviously, like I said, you can't do media at that point. What really gets you, and it doesn't matter if it's going to be the post office, UPS, or FedEx, you're looking at about eight to nine dollars to ship a bag of coffee. Weirdly Whoa. enough, one bag of coffee is the same as 15 bags of coffee because it's that range of weight. So that's something they have to, you know, definitely consider. And when they do the Kickstarter, most people generally know already if they're doing the Kickstarter, that they're going to have to pay for the shipping, the, the backers do in a lot of cases. And if you go onto a lot of different coffee websites, most of the places charge usually right around six to $7. They're probably losing a couple of dollars on shipping fees on their end, but people pay it, especially if they're big coffee fans paying that extra five or $6 for shipping doesn't bother them. Um, that's something they definitely have to consider and make sure that when they do that tier with the coffee, they either add in some other extra things like patches or stickers or pens or something basic to add up the value of it so that it's a little more worthwhile, but also the weight isn't an issue. I had no idea it'd be that much. In fact, I, I'm really kind of flabbergasted it's, it's that much. That's the big reason I'm not looking at doing sales online. There, there's companies that do it, and honestly, I'm not sure. They must just ship so much that they get crazy discounts. I even I get discounts on my end, but being in New York, if I'm shipping out to California, it's right around $9.85 a box. And But it doesn't matter if it's one pound or 15 pounds. Once you have more than 15, it goes up from there. But, yeah, so you really, you need to be charged, you, but whoever's doing this is probably going to need to at least charge 
at least uh, ten dollars more. Well, because you also have your box. Yep. And and such. So it's going to be. So you really need to be probably charging. If it's an eight dollar bag of beans, you need to be charging twenty dollars. Uh, you know, for that coffee. But but the second bag's cheaper though. So I mean, you're 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 paying yeah. more, but not another eight dollars. So right. So I mean. <laughs> Maybe it's if they did it, they could kind of figure that in. Maybe the person gets two pounds of coffee instead of one, or they can add in extra things if they have other sources. You know, like I said, to fill up the weight. Because at that point, when you do the weight, it doesn't matter between that one pound and that fifteen pounds. A little fluctuation, but it's pennies, and that's what that's the biggest thing that gets me on shipping coffee and stuff. And why I've kind of avoided a little bit is just. I'll get one person that orders one bag of coffee and by the time I ship it, I basically didn't make any money. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely good to consider. But I think the other thing is, I mean, as far as, you know, even if it's a, a break even for, uh, if it's a break even for the person with a Kickstarter, um, it's, it still is something that can generate excitement about, about their product. That's, the goal hopefully i mean i'm hoping people will be able to make money if they're centered in the more the center of the u.s shipping will be cheaper because it's not as far of a distance oh way. okay yeah so I'm, I'm basically south of chicago so i'm okay so it'd be a little bit easier on your end but not usually different from mine but yeah i i'm guessing most of the gamers are going to be texas straight upwards and then going east is probably where most of the, the gamers are yeah um I would recommend making sure that it's U.S. only. It's shipping. Yeah. <laughs> Last time I sent five pounds of coffee to a guy in Canada, it was almost sixty dollars. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> it's it's crazy. It, you could just walk across the border and give it to him, and and probably for not much more. Yep. <laughs> yep. But yeah, I would definitely recommend people if they do like a coffee tier or whatever, just add in, even if they wanted to buy some bulk dice. I mean, just to give you an example, the last adventure box we did had a small design. It was just a little adventure. It had a custom D20. It had some patches, some stickers. It had the bag of coffee. It was called Wood Gollum, which was a Guatemala Huentago. Uh, what else did we have in there? There was a custom. Uh, my mom actually so so she made dice bags custom dice bags for everybody there was a hand carved wooden spoon from one of our local artists everything piled in the box was about three and a half pounds and it was eight dollars eight to nine dollars so yeah you were saying this before and it wasn't fully clicking now i, I understand what you're saying <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah. what you need to do is just make a premium tier <laughs> basically yeah and and just goodies. throw some fun stuff in there because weight wise yeah that makes sense it just, it just doesn't matter at that point and you can find um things fairly cheap like i think i bought a little over 200 d20s they were black with orange letters and then or numbers and then orange with black numbers because the whole adventure that was for that adventure box was based on what color d20 the person got in their box and stuff but i mean i think i paid like 90 some dollars for wholesale and the dice so it didn't really cost me anything but it upped it i mean i was able to charge an extra two or three dollars on the box because of a custom d20 right that makes sense so it really needs to be more of a strategy most likely than just the coffee because it but it could be that people might order you know two or three bags who knows i don't know i don't know it's just really on the person running the Kickstarter, their end of how they want it. I mean, if they're looking to make a lot of money off of it, then 
They're gonna have to somehow <laughs> somehow manage that. Maybe they can find better deals. Maybe they can deliver themselves. Well, but... I think that I think there's very few people. I think the people when you look at the Kickstarter making a lot of money, and then when they start explaining, <laughs> well, I so much for the art, this much for printing, this much yeah. for postage, and I was left with this. So it's it's. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people do it for fun, to be honest, especially when it's a smaller type of thing. They might break even and be happy. But. Yeah, actually, because um, have you ever put anything on um, Drive Through RPG? Um, I worked with a few people that did, but sort of. I I'm at the point where I put stuff on, and I've just been kind of playing, trying to figure out where I want to go with this. I do not think that even the big companies aren't necessarily making that much money off of Drive Through RPG. And if you ever look at the the, especially if you look at the smaller, when I say smaller, I mean like even like Monty Cook. So if you go look at some of their their products that they put out, and you go look to see what metal level it's at, mm-hmm. it's kind of shocking sometimes how low it is, because <laughs> their money came from the Kickstarter. It's not. It's they're getting some revenue stream in from drive through, but that's not really what's keeping them afloat. So I think really, for the most part, I think if you're wanting to actually, you know, make some money out of it, more than just coffee money, so to speak, um, no pun intended, the uh, <laughs> the idea is, is probably a combination of Kickstarter and following up the drive-thru. Yeah. yeah. So what was this, what is this RPG zine that, or, that we will not see? So what was this, was it a zine or was it? going to be a, a Kickstarter project? Uh, no, it's going to be a zine. Um, I don't really have any sort of names or anything, but basically we're just going to sort of combine the 1970s and 80s crust punk and anarchy. So wait, so let's go, let's go back. So I'm not familiar with the term crust punk. <laughs> or crust punk. So it is sort of a, not necessarily violent as in like hurting people, but violent themed of... Um, Anarchist and Anarchy in the UK is a common theme. There's a lot of different bands, but it's very just a, a dirty, grungy, against the man sort yeah. of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The 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 uh, the the Thatcher period in England. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's exactly. No, basically, you know, the huge spiky mohawks, the leather jackets with the spikes and the bulleted and the bullet belts and things like that. The combat boots. That's sort of the crust punk. It's generally loud, a little obnoxious, but at the heart of it, it's basically just pushing for an equality of people and government not being held to the high esteem that they often are. Okay, so so we got the crust punk. So which to me really is just like real punk, not the fake punk. This is the, <laughs> the real know, this punk. is yeah. This is these are the people that are just uh, living very difficult, harsh lives. You know dealing with violence dealing with poverty homeless a lot of times and just maybe cranking out music and going to the clubs and 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 getting themselves in trouble so we got that so i got the crust punk so what's the second part um and that's going with a post i don't want sort of post-apocalyptic but my idea was that basically some sort of alien person or race or whatever the case got a hold of some of these crust punk albums took them back and they basically built their whole planet or their society based around these records these albums what they heard and and basically kind of an envision of what that alien world would be if that's what they based their lives on okay 
and and not for me to tell other people because they've got visions, but here's what I see. Here's what I see. So you've got crust punk and people building their things. So you also have a prog rock you could do. Yeah. There's there's you know uh, psychedelic rock. I mean, you could. I think what I, I mean for me, I see is like anthology. <laughs> You know, one's, you know, maybe the avatar of David Bowie, you know, Ziggy Stardust action going on. Yeah, I think I think you really have a potential for a series. I didn't think of it that way. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Seeing that planet full of Elvis impersonators. (laughs) There we go. You know, because you could do, I mean, if you think about not just the albums, but let's say they also grab the movies. Yeah. So then you have all the 50s horror movies combined with the 50s music and you got like a, a rockabilly uh, <laughs> yeah, madness going on, right? Yeah. You could be your own apocalypse, but you're, you know, it's in Thunderbirds and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so that was my, my basic idea I started. It was going to be very um, tongue in cheek sort of writing with it. Um, everything's based around playing gigs or which is really just running missions or you're a punk band instead of a group of pcs or whatever the case is things like that but down the road i still plan to do it i've been actually i was working on it today a little bit i just know that there's no chance i'm going to get done with it in time for this so okay so summer thing so who's doing the art are you doing the art for that i've debated i'm not a very good artist but i also don't want good art if that makes sense i want it to no, clean, look what's right, the aesthetic also, it's the aesthetic for the 70s, right? Yeah, very grungy, dirty, messy. Well, the Clash, they did their own uniforms. They just, just cut stuff up and sewed stuff together, and that's it. Yeah. That's kind of how I wanted to do this. I'm, I mean, I'm decent at art, but not great. But I thought, I don't know if I'd have time. But yeah, I wanted just a very professional, but looking amateurish artwork, if that really makes sense. Yeah, if you could capture the uh, vibe of the of the seventies and early eighties punk posters, yep. You know, I mean, that would be really pretty amazing. Yep, that's what I was trying to think of for a cover, sort of, because a lot of times they would just kind of cut letters out and slap it on there, photocopy it. Somebody would scribble a picture of a skeleton doing something. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, it was very messy, very amateurish, but it also just put aside. I mean that side that they were did what they wanted to do regardless damned everybody else sort of thing exactly so hopefully maybe this summer i'll be able to release that but um you know i've done a few other things with people i have a few things on drive through and but it's just more of a hobby something to do for fun yeah that makes sense um yeah it sounds very exciting so i think you need to keep everybody uh in the rpg zine group um apprised of when you're ready to release that because uh, Tim Shorts, um, he, um, when I interviewed him, he, he, he actually got his start he, making zines the old fashioned way. So I don't know. There's a, a certain, you know, it's a lot of ways it's a lot simpler, but in a lot of ways there's a, I think a little bit of soul that's gotten lost in, in that uh, process of, of going digital. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, even when I designed this or if I ever get around to it, I want it to still look like those. 70s and 80s zines that came out and just stapled together, growing a little bit crooked, maybe, and send it down this way. You know, I'm not looking for a real clean copy. I'm just looking to 
get it into people's hands, have fun with it, make it look as grungy, dirty, as amateurish as possible, but usable. Exactly. Hey, uh, Morgan, I really uh, appreciate the time, taking the time to to go through all this. And it's uh, been a lot of fun and it's actually been pretty educational. Oh, the other thing I was gonna ask too, um, I think I asked you on the, on the uh, Facebook group, but I didn't ask you here. So uh, going back to coffee real quick, how long is that stuff good for? So I use poly bags that have a gas release valve because coffee does give off gas if that gas stays in there or if oxygen gets in there, that's what starts to degrade coffee. The bags are sealed up tight. They have the release valve that lets the gases out but doesn't let oxygen in. If you're getting a whole bean, honestly, you're good for four or five months easy on a whole bean, more like three to four on a grind coffee. It's good longer than that. It doesn't really go bad, but it definitely starts losing flavor. But I strongly suggest people use it within like a four to six week range. I mean, after that, just because it's in, it does start to degrade. A lot of people won't notice it or taste it unless you have a really uh, specific palate for coffee. But, you know, that four to six range is the sweet spot to make sure it's used up for it. If it's a little bit longer, great. If not, it isn't going to be a huge difference. Um, people do ask a lot, though, if they should toss it in the fridge or the freezer. No, don't do that. Don't do that at all, because it'll actually pull the moisture out of the beans and you know from the cold, and then that pulls out the flavor. And then when it thaws out or you know gets back to room temperature, it loses a ton of flavor. Just leave it in the bag, <laughs> throw it in the cupboard, out of the sunlight. I use black bags too, so it keeps the sunlight out, and you're good. You don't need okay. That. So do not. I think this is a public service announcement, right? <laughs> yes. Do not put it in the fridge or freezer. <laughs> Ever. I get people asking me that at, you know, my coffee shop. And I'm like, no. And they're like, oh, sorry. <laughs> but let's say you were, let's say, let's say you're planning for an apocalypse. Uh, and maybe you're looking like, you know, something in 10, 20, 30 years, but you want all your coffee bought now. If you were to put it, if you were to freeze it, if you're wanting to pull it out in 30 years, would that be the, an option? Or would it be just like, like awful? Or would it be like, okay, it's not great? Honestly, that's a good question. I have no, I imagine it's not going to be that great, but. <laughs> it's not going to be like wine is what you're saying. It's not going to no, get better. No, it doesn't, it doesn't get better with age. <laughs> it's funny too, because when I first opened a coffee shop, I bought this used coffee grinder just to kind of get things going. And I don't know, it looked like it was probably out of like the 80s somewhere, but it still had like this clear bowl at the top that had coffee beans in it. I tried so hard to get one of my employees to like grind it up and drink it. We have no idea how long it was there. <laughs> Nobody would, but it, I mean, it wasn't moldy or anything, but <laughs> we don't know. It could have been 30, 40 year old beans sitting there. You know, and that may have been, who knows, maybe, maybe get some other tape. Maybe, maybe it starts, it goes all the way to bad. And maybe at a certain point it goes back the other way where it starts <laughs> becoming amazing. better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, it's like maybe it's starting to take on nuances <laughs> that never before have you ever encountered coffee. Well, I haven't had 40 year old coffee yet. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's a thing. Well, you got to remember, you got to start now if you're going to want to drink, try it in 40 years. So that's right. Up the price, aged coffee. <laughs> yeah, I think you've got a business deal. You could stuff that doesn't sell, you could say specially aged. <laughs> there we go shelf aged <laughs> and just charge more money for it <laughs> and i think you could just psych people out about the notes you know what i mean because everybody else gets confused about the whole thing you see this is what you get into the starbucks technique now 
You just add syrup to it and you're good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like somebody said they don't really sell coffee. They just sell what like sugary, like coffee flavored drinks or something like that. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks again, Morgan. It's been great. Um yes, and thank you. I wish you the best of luck for your endeavor. And I don't know, you know, I think regardless of whether people, you know, do it this time around, I think it's definitely getting that out there because I think for myself, I don't know if I'm quite level ready for that level of planning at this moment. But yeah. but I tell you what, I'm sure I'm excited about the product, and I'm I know I'm going to spend uh, some of my uh, brain cycles uh, thinking about ways I can uh, utilize uh, the service that you've got. So thank you. And I guess I should mention that after you know this Zine Quest goes over and stuff, probably more like March, April. Um, there was a couple people that mentioned it in the group and messaged me. And I've done it before, but I'm going to be sort of swapping gears and looking for other people who are interested in writing products or artwork or things like that to send to me to do these adventure boxes. My, my, my goal eventually is to try and do like a monthly adventure box that has a magazine, flyers, games. Oh, like, like a loot crate, I guess. Yes. So in, you know, hopefully I can flip fly in that case. The cost comes over to me because I mean, getting somebody to write home something is can get a little bit pricey. But if it's something that we can manage and mash up and figure out, then that's my goal. Well, Morgan, I think that's actually genius. To tell you the truth, you may be, I think you may be hitting the because the zine thing seems to be growing um, by leaps and bounds. I mean, we don't know if it's going to keep going or not. But I, I mean, the idea that you are going to give me coffee. And you're going to give me some zines and you're going to give me some odds and ends, you know, some stickers I can throw on my computer or refrigerator or whatever. I think I'm sold. <laughs> Thank you. Well, we did you know, the one before and just a quick test run of it and it worked out phenomenally. It, it turned out really good and it was a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, cause I've never, I've, okay. I will also, to be fair, I've, I've the loot crates, all that existed before, um, no interest. But honestly, when you said this, I'm like, wow, I think I would really like that. It was a lot of fun to do. Um, I lost my butt on it, but it was also more of a promotional thing. So I kind of expected that I overpaid on a lot of things. And the, our, the uh, writer that did the little pamphlet and everything adventure for me is a good friend. So I basically just split everything with him. But it was a lot of fun to let me kind of get an idea of what the cost of everything, because that's where I learned the whole idea about shipping and the fees behind that that's really the thing that killed me was the shipping so that's my biggest difficulty is figuring out how to manage that part of it you know, you know and that's <laughs> as we keep diving back in after we barry get out of the pool uh, you know the whole idea of supply chain and efficiencies and creating nodes and various things i mean that's kind of uh, you know the you know, I don't know, like if you were to, um, let's say you were to um, have a person in Illinois and a person in Texas. I don't know if there's a way of shipping. Th I don't know if there's a way you can, I don't want to say game the system, but there, there's got to be ways of of gaming the system and, and, and doing the shipping. I don't know how that is. There's got to be a way. Something. If anybody has ideas, let us know because, yeah. I mean, I think a part of it too is being where I am in New York and shipping anywhere out West. It just that, you know, further it goes, the more it costs. And that's what it's, it's, it's the individual shipments, not yeah. a one big shipment. So yeah, one, 
So you can send a pallet of whatever, it's like not that bad, but to send that pallet in individual boxes to individual people is like insane. Yep, that's that's a exact hang up. It's also why, I mean, you see on a lot of these things, especially Etsy and other you know, sites like that with small artists, the shipping is often crazy and that's what turns people away, but that's really what it costs. I mean, I wish there was an easier way, even with like my business discounts. And oh, Amazon, stuff. what about doing this through Amazon? Amazon, I'm not sure. I've looked into selling like coffee on Amazon. No, no, your boxes that way. But they can distribute it. You, you send it right to the warehouse and then they would send it from there. Hmm. Maybe. I'd have to look into it. I don't know. Okay. So this is the stuff I like doing. I like figuring <laughs> these things out. Like, <laughs> if you can figure it out, yeah, let me know. I've never, I haven't looked into it. I'm yeah. Yeah. So what you do is you, yeah, you, and I don't know how it works, but you probably set it up, you set a price. And um, they, I'm not sure how they get their cut, but that's what a tremendous number of businesses do. Yeah. And then that would, um, like I say, I don't know. I think sometimes you do pay shipping and sometimes a person doesn't uh, based on prime, but I, I, I'm not sure if it's based on quantities or where it's located, but I think that's right. If you were wanting, I think if you were wanting to do this on a, a fairly big scale, that's where it probably become worth it is to actually utilize somebody like Amazon. Yeah. I've seen some other Kickstarters use different distributors too, because that might be why. Yeah. And that's the other thing too. I think it's kind of like, even like, you know, with the zine quest, it's like, you know, if you're split up between, as you can see is like, there's not a lot of margin. Once you start splitting stuff up, it starts becoming like yeah. very little money. And everybody else is making money, but you, right. I mean, it's like, <laughs> You know, when I was doing, uh, I used to sell um, uh, uh, fine art photography, but it's like, you know, once you buy a bunch of frames, you buy a bunch of mats, and you know, and you're buying this, you buy the racks, you're like, right now everybody's making money but me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I got to sell a lot of pictures just to pay off the inventory of frames that I have <laughs> before I, it's like, right now, Jeffrey Allen's is getting off great. I'm the one that's still... <laughs> Yeah, seems to be the way it works. But yeah, anyway, it's uh anyway for the for the third or fourth time, Morgan, it really has been fun. <laughs> Thank you. I so really much. appreciate it. No problem. You take care. Thanks. You too. Yeah, I wasn't sure how long we're gonna go. That well, I'd say a little bit extra with the with the the post apocalyptic game, which I think is sounds like a lot of fun. But uh, oh yeah, I think that crate is. I think that is genius. That's sort of my whole hinging thing that I really, really wanted to do. The first one was a nice, I did uh, 162 boxes, I think it was, something like that, that I ended up sending out altogether. But yeah, the shipping is just, I was like, man, I was expecting when I built the box and I had people order it on the website and stuff, I only did $5 shipping. I'm like, it's weighs two pounds. It can't be that much, but it doesn't matter. Yeah, flat rate shipping. The flat rate for it was fifteen dollars. I was like, "Well, I'm gonna have to adjust that." Because I always kind of mocked some of these other businesses on all the coffee businesses online that would have twelve ounce bag, but then you're paying seven dollars for shipping. I was like, "Well, oh, I know, I know, I know what you need to do." See, this, this, is, this is easy for me to tell people what to do. So, here's the other thing. I think <clears throat> I really enjoy this trying to figure this stuff out. The um, the other thing is, I think it's bad now, but conventions is another thing. Yep. So I think if you were to to partner up with a a 
person that goes and sells at various, especially conventions, I think that would work out real well. I've considered that quite a few times because I usually hit Gen Con pretty much every year. Um, what's the other one? Uh, Gary Con. They had a coffee vendor there last time, actually. But yeah, I wanted to hit conventions definitely. If I can afford the time off and the travel time, then that's something that's in my radar. Well, but you could also ship that to a, a person if if it was somebody wanted to booth it for you for, mm-hmm. you know, somebody that's already got a booth. Yeah. So, yeah, because what you could do is you could you could tailor, I mean, you could do um, either to like maybe a particular game system or maybe even just a, a uh, like an OSR box and a post-apocalyptic box and a yeah. fifth edition box or whatever, a horror box. Um, see, that's the other thing too. This is what gets kind of weird because you have to, you have to, this is why I find like with fine art, like you put up all these pictures and it may, what may sell there may not sell somewhere else. And there's mm-hmm. no really telling you think, Oh, I see a pattern. And there may be no pattern. Yes. I've noticed so, that a bit as well. <clears throat> so it's like, it's such a head game. It's such a head game. So, um, so if you were to do, that's a problem with doing multiple themes though, you may be cannibalizing and you may just have to do too many different boxes with really no real benefit. Yeah. But I think if you do an OSR, I think you just do an OSR zine or just do one that's just crazy independent wackiness. I think, I think both those would do real well. Those are the two big ones that I focus on. May I have your attention for a few moments, please? You may unfasten your seat belts and smoke if you wish. Ashtrays are provided in the arm of your chair together with a lever to recline your seat. The drinking water fountain is in the center of the cabin. Cocktails and lunch will be served in one hour's time. In the meanwhile, we will be happy to serve you with drinks and cigarettes, which will be available in 10 minutes. Hello, Diogo. Hey, hello. So you're from Brazil, Rio de Janeiro, in the middle of uh, what is, a, I assume, a tropical region. And uh, yeah. so with RPG history for myself, it's like, it, you know, growing up, it was, it kind of grew because we're in the middle of nowhere, small towns, it's winter time, the things really caught on. Um, but in Brazil, uh, there's a thriving RPG community. And this kind of caught my notice back with uh, Fate Core when it went out. I noticed there was a lot of strong Brazilians pushing for for material to be in translating and creating unique content. I'm also seeing other companies that are Brazilian and artists. So I guess the question I have for those of us who are in the U.S. Um, so what were your RPG experiences? What brought you to the hobby? Well, when I was like about nine or eight years old, I studied in a Catholic school and they were kind of liberal in some things and they, they decided to let us choose uh, what would be our like extracurricular book for the semester. And some kids just suggested the Death Trap Dungeon from the Fighting Fantasy series. And for some reason it, it was enacted 
And in a Czech Catholic school, like a bunch of eight-year-olds bought the books and started playing Death Trap Dungeon, uh, the game book, like, like a solo quasi RPG experience, right? So I got into Fighting Fantasy books. I really liked Death Trap Dungeon and I started looking for other game books like that. And when I was about uh, 10 years old, I moved to another building and one of the older kids saw me playing the, the fantasy, Fighting Fantasy game book on, on the lobby and he came to me and said, oh, do you like these game books? Uh, we're playing something called a uh, role-playing game. Uh, it's called Tagmar, which is the first Brazilian RPG ever released. And if you, if you want to, to play with us, you, you can come with us. We play at night, and it's really more more open-ended than game books. You can do whatever you want, and things like that. So that sounded awesome for me, and, and I joined them. And on my first session, my character died. Uh, afterwards, we went to the like to the the courtyard of the of the building and we buried my character sheets on the on the yard <laughs> and it was pretty cool and i got hooked from there and started looking for games and and, and i was 10, 10 years old and they have just released in brazil the first ever uh, version of dnd that came to brazil which was the challenger set from dungeons and dragons that black box with the uh, uh, red dragon and I bought that and I started reading. I didn't really understand it very well because for me, halflings were basically half elves, half dwarves. So they were pretty good. They had like a bit from dwarves and elves. I don't know how I came up with yeah. that, but that's how I played back then. And, and I never stopped. I mean, I stopped during college, but I, I played uh, everything that came out in Brazil, like Dungeons and Dragons, and Vampire the Masquerade, AD&D, and Paranoia, Cyberpunk 2020. And I tried, I, I got really obsessed with it. <laughs> so I played as much as I could. So the, the fighting fantasy that you played early on, you're in grade school, uh, it was written in English, right? No, oh, in so it was in Portuguese. They had it in Portuguese okay. yeah. So you're yeah. able to... Yeah, it was called Cangabos uh, da Morte. Imports, yeah, yes. I was thinking it would be it, usually at that age, it's hard enough to to understand the rules as written in your own language. I couldn't imagine having a, having another language. So so yeah. uh, so then so there has been uh, Brazilian or Portuguese um, translations for these RPGs for quite a while. Yes. So what age were you, so what are uh, what's your age right now? I'm 36. So you're 36. So when you were younger, like what were the, were there any sort of like media that sort of um, created that, that like, were there certain movies or certain uh, books or certain cartoons? I mean, that kind of uh, pushed you in this direction or at least kind of created an appetite for, for role-playing games? Oh, well, yeah, we had the, the D and D cartoon here that we called Caverna do Dragão. We, well, have Tundar the Barbarian, He-Man, and the, the Guardians of the Universe, you know. All these, these cartoons, like the 80s cartoons, were really influential to me. Even today, like many of my, my games have influence for, for this type of media. I didn't really read a lot of fiction back then. I started reading, like, after my 20s or something, like, 
reading Tolkien and Hobbany Howard and Edgar Rice Burroughs, all that that kind of stuff was afterwards. But there were there were movies, right? The He-Man movies and basically the Savage Sword of Conan too was really really cool thing to read as a kid. And like the black oh. and white art was fantastic. So I guess basically cartoons and and and, and like eighties movies and nineties movies. Right? So really, we were experiencing the same things about the same time, and that there was the same type of parallel with that same material being translated into Portuguese. And yeah, so the the first um, Portuguese RPG, the the first RPG that you played that was written specifically in Portuguese wasn't something ported over. What was the name of that one? So how, so what was that game like? I mean, is it, does it hold up? Do you look back on it now, saying, "Yeah, it's a great system." Yeah, yeah, I, I, I like it. It's, it has something like the that Faza table with the colors and results that you roll, and depending on the color you reach, you do more stuff or less. You, know, you have a greater success or lesser success. You know, uh, it was really. Similar to D&D in some respects, like the character attributes, ability scores, and classes. And you have rangers, fighters, and sorcerers, and clerics, and this kind of stuff. And then the, and the character races too, like wood elves, golden elves, and Hoffmans. But they had like a uh, their own setting, you know. There are some aspects of it uh, that were different. Spells were more like you, you use it to spend mana to cast spells. They had a cool thing about the hit points. You had the uh, heroic energy, which being like you would start getting uh, fatigated as you lose this heroic energy. And you had like the physical energy, because after you depleted the heroic energy, you would really start bleeding with, for your physical energy. So had two separate hit points. But if you got like a critical hit against you, you lose direction from the from the physical energy kind of stuff. You know? So it's it's a cool game. They still have it today. They have like a third edition of Tagmar today, and it's free. You can go to their website and download it and play it. And but it, it got a little bit more complex over time. Like D and D, you know, like the first editions were like really simple. They started adding more subsistence and. And character customization and all of all of those things, and I still prefer like the first Tagmar for me. It's it's simple and easy to play, and now it's kind of more convoluted. So, were there uh, did you have any problems finding other people to play during this time, or were there always people willing to play RPGs? Uh, it was really hard, like uh, in the early two thousands, uh, like. Probably in the yes too. There was really after no early after third edition, like in between fourth, third and fourth was really uh, like a down low here. We didn't have many publishers. Uh, things were not being translated, and we didn't have many players. But nowadays, uh, board games are really popular, and board games help it bring up uh, a new new crowds the wrong playing scene and D&D 5th edition is really popular and it helps bring attention to the hobby to other games too. 
I think we are like in the golden age of role-playing games, at least in Brazil. And hopefully, hopefully, everybody else, everywhere else too. I mean, well, I think we have a number of things going for us now. I mean, one is we have the internet, which allows for easy distribution. Yeah, we have places like Drive Through and Itchio where you can actually sell your, your product. You have affordable uh, products like Defending um, Designer and Publisher that you can, you know, if you spend the time, you can actually produce a decent looking document. Not yeah. like it was in the 70s where you had to get a typesetter, special machine, then you had to print out a thousand books and yeah. you had to go through all that sort of stuff where now you're right. It's the, the bar, the technical bar to entry is much lower and that now, yeah, and oh, go ahead. And the game is popular too. There's a lot of people playing again. Like for a time, it seemed like the, the public wasn't being like renovated, you know, really the same old people playing. And now there seems to be a lot of new people coming to the hobby, which is, it's good. Well, I think the new people definitely have added to this and that's where it's great that's expanding. And I think also for the longest time, it's like, it seemed like games in the 70s, maybe early 80s had a certain vibe. And then went into the 90s, there was a, a felt the need to make things more complicated. And so everything just started yeah. turning up more, you know, to more complexity. And then I think in, in the early 2000s, there was some move by indie publishers and developers to say, you know what, we don't need to do all this. We can just, we can take an RPG, distill it down to two pages. It'll provide an experience. And I think that just opened up the world of possibilities rather than trying to simulate some sort of mathematical formula. You can say, you know what, we're just yeah. going to, we're going to simulate a certain experience and design for that. And I think that definitely opened up the world to, to more possibilities and allows people to play and makes RPGs more accessible to more people. But, yeah, I agree with that. Yes. It's, during the 90s they're like trying to simulate a reality in the <laughs> yes. game and it got really out of control i think and now you still have the, these options like there, there are systems that still do this but you have the option to like play systems that are like so abstract and it, you almost don't roll dice and you just uh make like bets to see how the story plays out right yeah exactly and i think in and some of those uh, activities and some of those designs are can be very engaging, but some of them are, might just be just fun and you just do it once in a while. Yeah. And that's what's, uh, yeah. Yeah. And I know in my, in my past, there was a desire to, I thought my role as a GM was to create a world and to create and make sure that everything stayed logically consistent. And it wasn't until much later on. It's like, no, I just need to turn what's the, what's the most fun. It's like, it's yeah. Like, why do I need to hold back fun when nobody really cares? You know what I mean? Just like whatever's the most fun. It doesn't mean that things always go right, that things always work for the for the characters, but yeah, it's just yeah. like, oh, you want to do something crazy? Okay, there's a chance this can work. And there's also a chance it can go really bad. Let's just see what happens. Yeah, let's see what happens. Yeah. So let's find out together. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. And I think as we get older, I don't like to speak for you, but I don't, I think when we're younger, that complexity is, is very interesting in a high school years. I mean, we like the math. We like spending hours and hours and hours doing a single combat. Yeah. Because you saw how oh, basic it's so basic, yeah. you know, there's advanced. <laughs> wow. I'm advanced. 
you know so it's it makes you feel like it's 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 something better it's advanced i'm a master of the game you know but it's it isn't no it... <laughs> i remember i sold i sold all my my agency books to buy third edition books and now i regret it completely you know and i'm trying to buy back the agency books and and it's not easy here in brazil to to get these old books like yeah, and I would imagine shipping from from the U.S. would be pretty expensive as well. Yeah. So, what sort of games have you played through the years? Are they are they there? Have there been some just Brazilian only games that you've you've ran or or played in, or is it mainly ports well, of? I mean, in the beginning, there were like a few Brazilian games. Like we had Tagmar, we had like Desafio dos Bandeirantes, which was like a fantasy version version of our colonial past which i really liked but like in the middle like when i was in high school and went to started went into college i was mainly playing like uh D third edition and, and vampire or something and i played in the third edition a lot but I, when i went to college i went to study graphic design i really wanted to dedicate myself to to the art and crafts and 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 drawing a lot and doing watercolor and doing like all sort of, of uh, art stuff. And I kind of stopped playing because not, not a lot of people in college wanted to play. And I had a band too. I was playing drums in a punk rock band. And there wasn't really much RPG action for me. So I, I basically stopped playing for like four years or so. And I didn't have had much money too, right? Uh, when I was a kid, my parents used to buy me uh, games, although they didn't really like doing that. But, why, why is that? Uh, I don't know. Uh, because there, there was some kind of satanic panic here too. And my parents thought like, ah, if you, you know, kids are mean. Like you, you play your rumpling games, you are a geek. Right. And if you're a geek, you're not school. So uh I had prob social problems in school because of that, and my mother hated uh, that I played these games, and, and and she really would prefer me to buy cool clothes and and stuff like popular kids would do. So it was really like a worker convincing them to to get me some games, and that's why I I, I like had to sold my second edition books to buy the third edition because my parents uh, wouldn't wouldn't buy me anything more. And during college, I had no no money because I had to buy art supplies and all that stuff, so I couldn't buy games. And after college, when I when I got my first job that was like paying well, I started looking around to see what what's going on. And fourth edition, D&D fourth edition had just been released, and I like started buying a bunch of books. But I was I was living in another city. I was living in São Paulo. And I didn't know much, many people there, so I was just reading the game, and and and, and it felt cool. It felt well balanced. It felt well written and everything. And when I came back to Rio for another job, and I started playing the game with with the, the group I had before and 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 new people, uh, the experience was completely different for me from what I remembered. Uh, when I could play it for the whole year, we couldn't finish three adventures. Like every time a combat started was like three hours of, of like moving miniatures and counting squares and my players that use it to like 
oh, I don't know, I will try to uh, topple the barrel and see if they fall out and, and jump through the walls and try to do something. They were just like, okay, I use this power. Okay, I use this power. Okay, I use this power. And, and, and I was really frustrated, frustrated with the game. And I, I thought, well, I have to see what else is out there because this is nothing like what I remembered game. And I discovered the OSR and the, and the indie games. And, and I went this rabbit hole and started playing like Fiasco, Labyrinth Lord, and Dungeon World. And I discovered Dungeon Crawl, Dungeon Crawl Classics, which is one of my favorite games of all time. And and there I there I there I went. Like I went to see I really focus on like small indie games now instead of big companies like uh, White Soul for Wizard of the Coast or even Pies or things like that. Yeah, because I think the smaller companies are able and not saying that, that people don't care in the larger companies, but the people who are in the smaller companies are really doing it because they really love it. And they put a lot of passion into it. Yeah, and they have more freedom to like to to do what they envision for the game, and not like in in D and D, they can do whatever they want. They say, okay, we'll have this many demographics. We we want to 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 sell this stuff too, so we can focus on this, on this, on this. We have to to appeal to everyone. So the game has to be somewhat bland, you know. Yeah, well, and I think not even just bland. It's like also, you know, as when you have smaller games, you can you can you can change mechanics. You can make a lot of different changes, but you, there's so much yeah. you cannot mess with with the wizard or with with D and D. Otherwise, people just go nuts. Yeah, and it's yeah. like that's what's for tradition. That's what is for tradition. They tried to mess it up and like make something different. And for like for the old people that wanted to, another same experience they had before but with new rooms of course didn't work so but for some people it was a great game like it's it's a great uh tactical fantasy game i think like some of the best stuff they they had were like this dnd challenges that you had to finish a dungeon in that amount of hours and you had to to do those specific things to get like bonus points it's like a competition like if you look at fourth edition more like a tactical fantasy game it works great but if you look as like a, I want to have a similar experience that I had with uh, older edition of D and D's, it it doesn't work. Right? Yeah, because I remember picking up some fourth edition modules that were really, really, really cheap, and figured, oh, I could just use them for whatever. And I think I might have picked up a gamma, looked through a gamma world, and I realized there really was nothing in there other than just combat after combat. There was really nothing in yeah. there to actually engage in story or characters. Yeah, but you know, but it's like you know, you know, looking at what things could they have done in in the fifth edition, but like, you know, like the stats. I mean, why is there a stat number? All you really care about is a modifier. Like, why do we? You know, yeah. you can maybe roll for it, but I mean, there's so, the way you know way skills are done. That could be vastly simplified. But I think it's kind of interesting how, you know, like you said, when we were younger, the idea of the basic D and D was something we kind of you know, dismissed for the more advanced stuff. Yeah. And then the OSR people said, hey, wait, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> it's like yeah. this is the good stuff. This is this this is all we need. We don't need anything else. That's that's when I think that's I it. think the thing is is you can you can bolt things on top of it and you can make adjustments to it and it doesn't break the game. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a sturdy engine. It's really simple and flexible, and you can pretty much do anything with it. And 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 you can play with it; it won't break. Yeah. So I, I think that's the problem. Is you know with D and D now. I mean, they they can't go they can't go back to that level of simplicity. It's not going to sell the books. <clears throat> it's yeah. going to alienate the people that have invested in you know with all those options, but. It's just amazing, you know, when you look at the OSR, just even between the various OSR products, there is a, a differences in the way people approach uh, the game. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's not every, it's not everything in the OSR is just a uh, BX clone, right? It, everybody has their own take on it and and puts their own experiences. I like one one phrase that uh, from the Still like an artist book from Austin Kleon is that uh, human hands are incapable of, of making perfect copies. So everything we do, like we infuse with something of our own uh, creation or experience or, or bias, you know. So you, you, even if you take 10 people to make 10 clones of D&D, every one of them will have something different, something, some particularity that will make them stand apart i guess yeah and i think that was kind of a feature i'll say of the early days some might consider a defect but um before the the internet you know you'd have these these books you're in a small group and you just have to figure things out and make up your own rules and you'd make have to make adjustments and i think it probably caused us to engage more in with the game and with the mechanics than before and yeah. i think it even fosters more of a of a do-it-yourself attitude yeah that's uh that's why i don't like really when people oh in this room in the book what did you mean by yeah. that i i have to answer but for me it's like i don't know man make up <laughs> interpret it as you want because depends on how you interpret it inter mm. interpret it it will change how the world functions for your game like if you if you're more like a strict it's a more like a greater game like it's it's harder if you're more open-ended, it's more like a heroic. You can do more stuff. So, I don't know. I I, I like people who just interpret their own games and they, and they make it their own. I guess. So, what what games are you playing now? What is the what are the hot games on your gaming table? Uh, I'm playing a, a, a bit of Morkboard because uh, I'm developing some some stuff for it and. I, and I like the simplicity. I like like the, the the green aspect of it. And it's for some for some people it's too much, but for for, for me and some of my friends it's just funny to know that everything is going to the shitter, yeah. and, and and you're going to die anyway. So you just have fun <laughs> with it. And I play a lot of my own stuff too, like uh, Dark Streets, Solar Blades, and I'm testing a little bit of uh, Cosmosaurs. Which is like a space dinosaur game that I'm making, and DCC. I, I still play a lot of DCC. Uh, this is the DCC community. It's really, it's really important for me. It's like like the first uh, international community that welcomed me with open arms. So I, I play a good amount of DCC too, and I, I try some other games uh, here and there, like these small games. I really, I, I, I loved the, the, the TV series Lost, you know? Yeah. So Adam Vaz made this game like 815, 
which is like a RPG of Lost, you know, you're in this island and there are all these people with secret pasts and the island has a lot of strange stuff. So you're like a hex crawl and you go around it discovering all kind of weird, weird things there. So, so are you playing uh, remotely for most of these games? Are you playing, you have any yeah. in-person games? Oh, no, no in-person games. In Brazil, this, especially in my city, like we have the highest death rates of COVID in all, like in the entire country and things are really out of control here. So I, I remain at home as much as I can. Yeah, for us, we, our group has fin- has had to go to roll 20 just and I think it's just going to get worse this year with the apparent mutations that are happening. Yeah, I don't know. I hope the vaccines start to, to calm things down. I mean, I have to twice a, twice a week. I have to go to to my workplace. I, I I work from home most of the time, but twice a week I have to go there. So I'm I'm exposed somewhat, but I always wearing masks and all that stuff. But for playing, I just I mainly use Discord. You know, I don't I I do a lot of uh, theater of the mind right. kind of combat and stuff. And I I sometimes draw something on my iPad and I, I just post the drawing on Discord so people know what they're seeing. Or I I just copy the image from the book and post there so they know what's going on. But I, I basically use Discord. So are there any hot Brazilian games that, that do not have English translations that you think would be like? Oh, like, yeah. So what would you say would yeah. be a, some some great properties that would be, you know, translatable to, to the U.S. or to English-speaking countries? Yeah, I have, a, I, have, I have plans to, when I move to Portugal, I want to open a publisher there to translate Brazilian games to the international market. So that's one of my plans. Since I'm, I won't be, I won't have a day job. I will still make my projects with old school publishing Ghana Night Games. By one, but I want to appoint a publisher to bring uh, Brazilian games in general to the to the bigger project, to the bigger uh, community. So there's a like there's a lot of cool stuff here. Like uh, there is this this author that I really like. It's a dear friend of mine, which is Jorge Valpassos. He has like a bunch of games, like the Paranormal Files, which is like a X-Files kind of game, but with a, a Brazilian take on it. So you have like a low-budget agencies trying to deal with supernatural paranormal activities. Uh, it has a, like a game about uh, killers, you know, so it's really a horror, like uh, psychological game that you are one of the killers. So you're not losing humanity and, and, and like you're getting worse. And there is this, this song game called Note Quest by Thiago Jung is here. It's like a really, really good uh, solo dungeon crawl game. And that's really simple to use, only the sixes. And there's a lot of possibilities and like a, like a hex crawl and you're discovering these, these dungeons. That's really cool too. There's there's really really a lot of stuff here. Well, and I think with Kickstarter, I'm not sure if you're planning on going that route, but Kickstarter definitely allows this sort yeah. of thing. At least you can yeah. fly the flag to see if people are interested before investing ten thousand dollars to to bring out a bunch of books. 
Yeah, that, that's my plan. We, we can't use Kickstarter here from Brazil, but from Portugal, I will be able to. So when I move to Portugal, I will be able to, to do that. Well, that sounds great. So anyway, um, I think this, we're hitting the, the, the wall of the time-space continuum. Uh, Diego and <laughs> probably call it night and then uh, we can talk later about your uh, about your work that you do sure yeah All right. thank you take care thanks for listening please take a moment right now to rate the show have you done it yet hey thanks for doing that that simple act of writing the show sure means a lot to me. There are no shortages of people to interview or topics to discuss, so this should be an exciting year, even if it is spent huddled in our own personal COVID bunkers. Well, Zine Quest 3 is on its way, and I still have work to do. Until next week, dear Ramblers. got this question i want to ask you oh hey jeff what is it well you know uh you know gary gygax yeah you named you know uh, who dave arneson was oh sure okay and we know that they kind of got along and then they didn't get along right they got along until they didn't okay so have you seen fight club yeah not for a long time but i have certainly okay so let's assume 1975, 76, whatever, in the parking lot, Dave Arneson versus Gary Gygax, who would win? Without any knowledge of their physiques, only knowing their RPG design, I I, I would have to say Arneson would win because he seems like a maniac. Um, Also, I don't... Oh, really? uh, Yeah. Yeah. also, I don't know if you've ever heard the stories about how he played Captain Harchar and if I'm saying that right in Phil Barker's um, Empire of the Petal Throne campaign, but he sounded like uh, a real uh, a, a real daring swashbuckling um, kind of uh, raconteur. And so I, I just kind of feel like he'd have the upper hand. Okay, so this is interesting because I always just, I always viewed you know, and I don't, I never knew either one of them. So, um, but I always viewed um, Gary as kind of one that was more hard nosed and Dave is kind of just being the head in the clouds kind of guy. And I thought, you know, if, if you're going to bet one of them carrying a shiv, it would probably be Gary, but you know, now that you say that uh, Dave could have, you're right. He could just be much more clever and you don't expect like some sort of move out of uh, Dave and he could do something unpredictable. Yeah. I mean, I think he was really squirrely and uh, was pretty, pretty quick thinking 
and was uh, generally a kind of gonzo, much more uh, kind of uh, gonzo sort. And so, yeah, I think against Gary's buttoned up, um, meticulous, uh, <laughs> you know, kind Linear of system, systems building, <laughs> you know, I just, <laughs> I just think he'll be, he'll be overwhelmed by the tsunami of Arneson. That's not to speak about the comparative greatness or anything. No, I'm just saying in the fight club, in parking lot. fight club parking lot context, how I see okay. it going down. So if, if this were the case, like, and let's say like, would you, if you're bet money, would you would you bet a little bit or a lot? Like, how confident do you are you in Dave's ability to take down Gary? <laughs> Very unconfident. I mean, you know, this is all going on a metaphor from their their respective game design and play, and so I'm pretty far out on a limb here, I think. But you know, um, but but like, I, would you go to the ATM or would you just do what pocket change you had? That's what I really want to know. Well, I, I yeah, I mean, I'd go to the ATM because you know if you were going to see this fight, I mean, can you imagine? And you had the opportunity to bet on it. I mean, I think you got to do it. You got to go for it. But um, yeah, I not not on the basis of my confidence of their uh, respective fighting abilities. But wouldn't that be kind of a thing to say, you know what? I lost half my life savings betting on Dave Arneson taking out Gary Gygax. Exactly. I mean, if you lost it, exactly. you'd have to explain it to the wife and all. But yeah. still, in the end, it would be kind of worth it, I would think, to have those kind of bragging rights. That would be a good story. Um, yeah. I, th I think you changed my mind on this one, Ben. <laughs> oh, good. We'll be betting right. on the same team. Okay. <laughs> And next time I have any ideas about betting, I'll, I'll give you a call before I actually uh, make the move. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks. Thank you very much, Ben. Talk to you later. Bye.